Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we are going to talk about a worrisome but important topic, which is the financial exploitation of older adults. And I'm delighted to have as my guest, Candace Heisler, JD, a national expert on the recognition and prosecution of elder abuse. She is a former assistant district attorney for the city and county of San Francisco, And over the past several years, she has specialized in creating trainings on elder abuse for judges, prosecutors, law enforcement, adult protective service workers, and victim advocates. She has also worked closely with the American Bar Association on this issue. As you probably know, it's fairly common for people to worry that an older relative might be financially exploited, but they're often unsure of just what to do or how to get a concerning situation evaluated. So... I'm delighted to have Candace Heisler join me today to talk more about this important issue and how we might better recognize financial exploitation and intervene when necessary. Candace, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure and a delight to be here, and I look forward to sharing some ideas with the members of your audience. Because I'm a lawyer, uh, it should surprise no one that I'm going to start by just saying what I cannot do. And you can call it a disclaimer, but it's important that you know I won't be giving out legal advice. I'm not addressing specific cases. And in fact, I now primarily teach and write uh, rather than handling cases. So I do not handle individual cases. Right. But I will share my experience from my years both as a prosecutor and Uh, as a trainer and person who's been following this issue for more than 30 years. Great. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. So maybe we can start just by making sure uh, everyone's on the same page about the term that we're going to be discussing, financial exploitation. So what are we talking about and what does that term mean when it comes to older adults? So in the biggest or greatest sense, when we're talking about financial exploitation, Some people also prefer or will talk about financial abuse. Uh, I treat them and most of my colleagues treat those interchangeably. We are talking about someone who is misusing the assets of an older adult. Those assets, of course, can be money, but they can be property. They can be things like jewelry or collections. Um, But mostly we focus on financial assets. Right. And correct me if I'm wrong, but financial abuse is often considered a subset of elder abuse, a term that uh, I think has a definition both um, federally, maybe in the Older Americans Act, and then often every state has defined it as well. Is that right? Uh, That is true. There are are a myriad of definitions of elder abuse, but uh, a form, and there are a number of forms that fall within the category of elder abuse, financial is one. And in fact, the studies that have been done of late 
say that financial abuse is the most common form of abuse that happens to older adults. Uh, the other thing to understand about financial and why it's deserving of special attention is because of the cost of abuse, of financial abuse in particular. And I'll just share a couple of numbers with those folks who are joining us. Sure. Uh, the first uh, is, a, is a study that found that it cost the United States about $2.9 billion, that's a B, mm. dollars annually uh, to clean up behind elder financial abuse. The state of Utah a few years ago did a study just looking at its own costs of financial exploitation, and they concluded that it was costing Utah a million dollars a week to deal with elder financial abuse because of the many kinds of losses. So imagine in a state the size of California, what the cost must be that we are uh, absorbing or dealing with uh, across the state on an annual basis. Right. And uh, there's also just, I imagine it can be an enormous um, personal cost or family cost for, for financial abuse that older adults can lose quite a substantial portion of their assets or even all their assets. And then that could have enormous implications for their ability to meet their needs and live the life that they want to live, right? That's absolutely right. Uh, you know, a long time ago, people sort of thought of financial crimes and financial abuse as, well, it's only money. But what we've learned with older adults is it is impactful in many, many ways. It will affect the life of the senior, the elder, uh, the older person, in that, of course, they may be left without the funds to live the life they chose to live. I've seen situations where people have lost their homes, uh, have spiraled into depression, have become helpless and hopeless, and have literally given up and willed themselves to die oh. because they have nothing left. These are heartbreaking. The other really sad thing is the effect this has on people's self-esteem, their belief that they uh, really are able to manage every aspect of their lives. And so it erodes their self-confidence in really heartless and painful ways. And then finally, I want to talk about the impact of financial abuse on families. Mm. And I've seen situations where the relationship between the older adult who has lost the money and other members of the family um, is really divisive. Uh, families have broken apart. Uh, there's a lot of recrimination in some families. There's also an effort in some situations for the family to say, well, that's evidence that parent can no longer live independently and the family literally swoops in and takes over all decisions for that elder, including where they're going to live and who's going to manage their money, mm. even in situations where that is really not uh, not something the elder needs. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, well, I want to talk more about these uh, family dynamics and, and also about who most commonly financially exploits older adults. But before we go into that, I'm kind of curious, and I'm sure the audience would be interested. How did you become particularly interested in this issue? Well, it happened in a lot of different ways. I'll start with my work as a prosecutor. 
I became a prosecutor for the same reason that many of my colleagues become prosecutors, and that is we really come with a desire to help and protect the community. And that may sound lofty, but it truly does drive many of us in the work that we want to do. Mm. I, at a personal level, uh, I look at my own family. Uh, my father spent years and years working, saving, lived through the Depression. Um, other family members did all of the same things and also uh, endured uh, persecution and also endured working and fighting for this country and its values. Mm -hmm. And for me to see situations where some person would see that person who had saved and scrimped and been uh, a wonderful person in life as a target because now they're older, they're seen as more frail, and then to go after everything that they have stood for and everything that they have worked for, I just find utterly heartbreaking. And so that also drives me. Mm -hmm. I also will add one other personal piece, and that's about my mother. So my mother was a school teacher for many years, and while in her late 40s was afflicted with a massive stroke that left her mentally intact, but physically very much impaired. And for the rest of her life, and she lived for many years, uh, she required care from others pretty much around the clock. Mm -hmm. And so I saw with my own eyes how vulnerable she was and how if she had had the wrong people around her, how easily she could have been exploited and preyed upon. And I think all of those were important experiences for me to make me care about in a really personal way about these uh, these issues and the people who are now being affected by financial abuse. Right. And if I understand right, you sort of took an interest in this when you were working as a prosecutor for the city and county of San Francisco and then just ended up becoming the go-to person. Is that right? Uh, or one yes. of them? I, I was going to say I had others who uh, who also carried that load. The short story is I, for whatever reason, realized that we had cases in the district attorney's office, and we had a lot of specialized prosecutors who would handle various kinds of crimes. But no one was in charge of handling cases involving older adults. Uh, and those cases require special handling. They're not just like another case. Mm -hmm. There are tremendous complexities in the lives of victims. Often we're dealing with families where the, uh, the perpetrator is a loved one, a family member, or someone they trust, like a financial advisor or a doctor or a spiritual advisor. And they really do require special handling in the same way that we specially handled cases of domestic violence and in uh, sexual assault crimes and crimes against children. And I brought that up at a staff meeting one day, and the solution was to say, wow, that's a really important point you've identified, so you go deal with it. Uh -huh. And so my unit, uh, the, which at that time was the domestic violence unit, uh, assumed responsibility for a lot of the elder cases. I'm pleased to say that uh, elder cases are now handled as a special unit. 
uh, and in fact, as parts of two special units, depending on the nature of the offense. And I'm proud to say that across the country, many prosecutors' offices are establishing vertical specialized units that only handle elder abuse cases. Mm, that's great. Well, um, what's certainly what we need right now with just uh, one, a growing population of older adults. But as a geriatrician, I'm just thrilled to see this appreciation that, you know, that older adults need a, a an approach that's adapted to their situation and needs and that that's true for these financial exploitation cases as well. So you just mentioned actually that that one of the things that makes these cases challenging is that the perpetrator may often be a family member or another trusted person. So let's talk about that a bit. I mean, who does most commonly financially exploit older adults? Because I, I feel like we hear a fair bit about scams and how older people need to be uh, alert to scams, people, you know, phoning them or, or otherwise trying to defraud them. But it's not just anonymous scammers, it sounds like. It can also be people they know. Can you talk more about what we know about who, who perpetrates financial abuse of older people? Uh, absolutely. Let me say that I think about sort of two categories within financial abuse. I think of the cases you're describing, the scams, the frauds that are somewhat impersonal, meaning there's no relationship between the victim and the, uh, and the perpetrator. And then I think of other cases, and the ones that I'm addressing mostly in my remarks are in the category I'm about to, to describe, and that is financial exploitation committed against people who are in ongoing and trusted relationships. And this is what I mostly saw in our office. So to give you some examples, this is the adult son or daughter who is victimizing the elderly parent or grandparent, uh, stealing their money, stealing their property, um, perhaps going uh, and taking out credit cards and incurring debt in the older person's name and without their knowledge. Think of that as identity theft. Or also, I feel like some of those cases can be gray where they're kind of, uh, you know, inducing their parent to give them money. And there can be debate about whether that's uh, legitimate or, you know, excess pressure or some form of manipulation, right? Well, a case like the one you've described has lots of questions that have to be answered because you're right. That is really gray. Uh, people, especially parents and grandparents, will uh, share readily share their assets with loved ones, their children, their grandchildren, and other relations out of love, maybe out of duty, maybe out of the sense of helping them because that's what parents do. Um, and all of that is completely understandable. I think it's fair to say that in almost any situation, there's some influence being exerted, and that's the influence of having that relationship, right. of being a parent uh, and having a child who needs something. Well, we're all influenced by people we're close to, right? Of course we are. The line where it starts to be criminal, and it's not a firm line, is when there's excessive persuasion or manipulation or some sort of threat or pressure or duress that is applied or where the elder is lied to and told that something is not what it is. And I'll give you an example, and some may find this extreme, but it was, it was a powerful example in my experience. 
So we had an older woman uh, living in her own home. The home needed repairs. It was in desperate need of a new roof, and it needed some other serious repairs. Uh, her daughter uh, lived in the house uh, part or some of the time with her. Unfortunately, her daughter had a substance abuse problem, mm -hmm. a pretty serious one. Um, I should also mention that the older woman, the mom, was also legally blind. Mm -hmm. What the daughter did was convince ma, her mom that they needed to take out a loan, a second mortgage on the house, to get money to pay for those repairs and especially to repair the roof. Mm. And so the daughter slid a document under uh, in front of her mother and said, kind of guided the hand and said, sign here. Well, as I've mentioned, the mother is, was legally blind and could not read the document, relied on her daughter's explanation, signed the agreement, and came to realize that she had been horribly deceived when the sheriff came to evict her. Because in fact, what she had signed was a deed to the house, giving the house completely over to her daughter. Oh, goodness. Nothing, nothing to do with repairing uh, the roof. And so that's an extreme example, perhaps, but it's an example of where deceit was involved, where the victim was honestly lied to and relied on that misstatement uh, and thought she was doing one thing when, in fact, a crime was being committed against her. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a... What a terrible thing. Well, I want to ask some more questions about what the older person or the other family member's recourse might be, because I know people are often wondering about that. But before we go into that, just in terms of who perpetrates financial abuse of older adults. So we've talked about family members who are close, who the older person you know, often trusts or feels a certain obligation to. But there are other people who older adults may develop relationships with also who might uh, financially abuse them. So let's talk about some of those other ones. I'm really glad you're uh, you're exploring that more deeply because, of course, family are the most common group of perpetrators, but by no means should anyone think that it doesn't extend beyond the family. Um, so cases that I've seen involved misuse of money or stealing from an older person by a person who had a power of attorney to act on behalf of the older person. Right. The, the holder of a power of attorney in California is called uh, an attorney in fact, so you may hear me use that word. They're sometimes in other states called the agent. So they're the person who are given who is given authority by the older person to act in their stead. I've also seen court-appointed conservators misuse their authority. Mm. Sadly, I've seen attorneys in attorney-client relationships and financial abuse, uh, financial planners and advisors misuse the money that it may be entrusted to them. And sadly, I've also seen various spiritual leaders uh, betray the trust of an older person who's a member of a congregation or affiliated with some religious or spiritual organization who's taken advantage of that relationship. Uh, and has exploited an older person. Right. So there are lots of different variations. I think I'd also like to talk about one that that might be sort of a hybrid of they started out as strangers, but then became involved in a relationship. Um, and this is one that we see sometimes discussed in the papers. So 
I'm going to describe a case that really broke my heart. Um, there was an older man. Uh, he'd never been married. He was a veteran. He fought in World War II to distinction. And he owned his own home in a neighborhood in San Francisco. Sadly, he was alone and he had some dementia. He regularly, and I think this is true of lots of older adults, he regularly went to dinner at a nearby restaurant uh, where other older adults became his circle of friends uh, and shared the evening with them at the local restaurant. One day, uh, there was a new person at the, uh, at the restaurant, and that was a young woman with a child, a young child. And while she did nothing initially, within a very short amount of time, she started befriending this older gentleman. Uh, they chatted. He then invited her to share his dinner. He really enjoyed the company, and he really grew fond of the little girl uh, and really enjoyed his time being with, with this young, uh, energetic uh, daughter of this woman. Right. The woman didn't stop there. After a short amount of time, she explained that she had some financial problems and needed money to help her mother pay for an operation. Well, as the investigation later showed, there was no mother who required it, an operation, but the gentleman provided the funds to pay for what he believed to be the operation. But she didn't stop there either. After a short, a little bit longer time, she convinced him that he really did need to have someone in his home and helping him take care of himself and prepare his meals and act uh -oh. as a housekeeper. And yes, uh-oh is the right word. Uh, at that point, he agreed. She moved in and she immediately began to isolate him from his friends uh, and really made her the most important part of his life and the center of his life. And in effect, she began to define what his life was all about. Right. Within a short amount of time, she had also taken over his bank accounts, had had her name added to the bank accounts as a joint holder of the account, and then finally convinced him to marry her so she could take care of him for the rest of his days. Mm. They were married. And soon thereafter, she emptied out his bank accounts and left him, uh, left him alone and bereft and disappeared. Mm. The case was reported, um, eventually made its way to law enforcement. And part of the sad part of this investigation was that it revealed that this woman, first of all, the there was no mother needing surgery. Second of all, she had married the older man, but was already in a committed relationship with the father of the little girl that uh, he, that the older gentleman was so fond of, mm. and that the father of the child, the child and our perpetrator all shared a home in another city in the Bay Area. Right. So those are the sorts of really terrible things that happen in the life of older adults. And it's our job really for all of us to be on the lookout and to be careful and to pay attention. Well, I think it's something that families certainly worry quite a lot about, you know, the older parent who's widowed or alone and who 
develops a romantic attachment to someone else who may be quite a lot younger, but, but not always is. And that families are often concerned that that person is just after, uh, just after the money. Actually, I was uh, randomly walking in San Diego. I was at a uh, convention. It was um, a little bit deserted. There was one other person on the street and, you know, he saw sort of the tag that I had around my neck and said, oh, what's the convention about? And then uh, I said, well, you know, I'm a doctor for older people. And he said, oh, I'm having a terrible problem with my older father. And that his father was a, a retired physician, widowed, had developed a, you know, romance with somebody else who, I forget if she had married him or not, but had effectively isolated him and was kind of, uh, at least this this man and his brother believed that she was inappropriately diverting the funds and they were, you know, in the process of getting into a legal action to try to untangle all of that. So it's uh it's not uncommon. And before I I want to ask you, you know, what people can do, but but I wanted to highlight another type of person who I guess could also perpetuate exploitation. Um uh, you mentioned earlier your mother who was disabled and had these caregivers, but it seems to me that also when people have these um people taking care of them who they hire to come in the home, that's potentially another uh risk because those people are often uh, helping older adults do their shopping and and manage their daily expenses. How common is it for, for financial abuse to happen in those situations? Oh, it's certainly not uncommon, and certainly I've seen cases like that. Uh, anytime you're dealing with a person who is dependent on others for care, the if there's a fr family or friends keeping uh, still in the life of that older person, it's really important that we keep our eyes and our ears open and look for changes. I don't, I want to make a couple of comments. The first is um, most caregivers do very hard work and do it earnestly, kindly, and as well as they're able. Mm -hmm. and, in, and so I don't want to cast a light that all caregivers are up to no good because that's really untrue. But some will take advantage of situations uh, and some will because of the unfettered access to the elder, the older person, or to their assets, uh, will take advantage. So it's helpful to be mindful that that can be happening and to keep our eyes open. The other piece I want to talk about is there are going to be situations that make us uncomfortable that involve older people. We're going to see, and I'm, I'm thinking of the example you gave of the, the man in San Diego who's worried about his father. Mm -hmm. And he may well have good reason to, but there are lots of other questions that need to be answered. It's also really important that we remember that older people, like all adults, do have the right to make their own decisions unless the court says they're no longer able to do so. And so people have a right to make decisions about who to give gifts to, who to share resources with, who to have intimate relationships with, who to leave uh, money and wills to, and all of those other decisions that are part of being a fully autonomous person. And so always, and it's, it can make our work sometimes harder, we always need to start with the question, is this something the person wanted to do? And if not, why do we think not? Are there departures from longstanding 
behaviors? Is there a longstanding practice? Has the person made statements about, for example, how they want uh, their money to be used in, uh, in the event they're no longer uh, around? Looking at long patterns of past behavior, looking at old wills or trusts or documents, um, looking for, for serious departures, and then looking at relationships in general and how have they evolved, what seems to be going on. Those are all parts of really taking apart what can be a very complicated situation. Right, right, yeah. Uh, no, I think it's so important that you brought up that point that older adults do have the right to make on decisions that their family uh, disagree with and also may resent or resist their family asking a lot of questions, right? Exactly. So that always creates the relationship tensions. <laughs> But there is this, you know, question of one, I've found that people often have concerns about whether the older person may be experiencing any changes to memory or thinking or cognitive impairment that might have made them more vulnerable. Although we should note that the Institute of Medicine did issued a report on cognitive aging a few years ago. So that's just the normal changes in the brain that uh, we expect as people get older because certain processes do slow down. And they did point out that even older adults who weren't experiencing early Alzheimer's or any kind of dementia process that was, you know, fundamentally damaging the brain under there, that, um, that most older adults just experience a decline in financial abilities as they get older. So they had sort of highlighted that even people who, who are normal and healthy become more vulnerable to difficulty with their finances or, you know, vulnerability to exploitation by, um, I forget if it was in your work, but I, at one point when I was researching this, I liked the defining the perpetrators as uh, opportunists, the ones who sort of find themselves, you know, in a situation and be, begin to take advantage of it. And then the, the predators, right? The ones who sort of more purposefully set out to find somebody vulnerable and exploit the, uh, the, the situation. And I, I think that can be a useful division uh, when we're thinking about this universe, I think the example of the gentleman who was befriended by the woman and uh, who had the young daughter uh, might fall into that category of predatory. It was pretty carefully thought out. Right. There were a lot of steps involved. There was a lot of deceit. And I think uh, we're more frequently seeing the situation of the son who needs needs money uh, to support a habit or uh, maybe having financial problems. And and sometimes caregivers uh, finding themselves just with a surfeit of riches in front of them and taking advantage of an opportunity. Uh, and they're so... Or maybe that, feeling entitled because uh, I know that comes up too, that sometimes, you know, there's an adult child, you know, who's moved in with an older parent and feels like they're doing quite a lot. <laughs> You know. Well, I've, I've seen lots of motivations for or justifications, sometimes self-justifications for why people take other people's assets. Right. And certainly entitlement is one that I see. And I see it with the caregiver family member who says, you know, I've been doing all this and all of you folks have gone about your business and you've not been any help. Uh, and this has meant I had to maybe leave a job or this has meant that I needed to be there 24-7 for a long time. And so a person like that may feel entitled. I've seen some paid caregivers who just felt that they should be paid more than 
then uh, they were authorized under their salary and so took advantage of situations. Uh, I've also seen uh, just this sense of I'm the I'm the I'm the daughter and I'm going to take under the will because I'm the only child and I just need my money now. Mm. I don't want to wait. Mm-hmm. I don't want to wait. I think it's worth mentioning that uh, that older person isn't gone yet and it's still the older person's money. Right. Um, and then of course the other the other in, the other motivation that I see is something like greed. And so that may be helpful. I'll tell you within the criminal justice system, kind of doing this sort can be helpful for us in figuring out what kind of case it is and what what might be our goal in resolving the case. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get into that, maybe maybe we can talk about, you know, how this gets into the, the justice system or gets into somebody investigating it to figure out whether financial abuse has taken place and what to do. So, so uh, what? Uh, so for instance, you you told the story of the man in, in San Francisco who was befriended by the younger woman with her her younger daughter, and she took away all his assets and then disappeared. So how did your office get involved? Did his family? What is the process? You know, when 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 a family becomes concerned about an older relative, uh, that someone is exploiting them you know, what can they do and how does this get brought to the attention of the authorities and what do we have available to help people look into these concerns and perhaps try to chase down the wrongdoers? So that's a lot of questions. Yep, I know. And I'll try to kind of parse them. So uh, if you're a family member and you're concerned about something, uh, you can, of course, take it up directly with the older person or even with the Let's say it's a family member who you think may be uh, taking advantage of mom's generosity. Obviously, there are things the family may be able to do informally. But beyond that, or where that doesn't make sense, uh, there are a couple of things. Number one is, if you think it's a crime, you, of course, can, and I would encourage you to call law enforcement and start a criminal investigation. And I know that's a hard step for people, especially if it's a family member. But uh, it's one which sometimes is the only good way to really hold the offender accountable. Uh, The other possibility is that it could be reported. It could be reported to Adult Protective Services. I'm going to shorten that long word, Adult Protective Services, into APS for the rest of today, Mm -hmm. most likely. And Adult Protective Services is a county-based arm of government. And its purpose is to look into allegations of abuse and neglect and exploitation uh, to figure out what's happening in order to reduce risk. Now, a guiding principle of adult protective services is they want to honor the older adult's preferences uh, to try to keep the older adult in the setting, the living setting in which the older person prefers to live, and that may mean providing supportive services to help that older person be able to maintain their independence and live within the setting of their choice. So those are more formal ways. Um, They, of course, might uh, talk with an attorney about pursuing legal remedies uh, in the civil courts. 
And the other place that could get involved might be the probate court. Mm -hmm. And can you just briefly clarify the distinction between pursuing it on the civil side versus the criminal side? Because I think that's something that, you know, many of us who are not attorneys don't understand very well. And it's an important distinction. Uh, Obviously, my experience is primarily on the criminal side, and that means a person has violated a law that defines certain conduct um, as a crime. And the ultimate penalty that a person, the, the offender, who we would call a suspect before they're charged with a crime and a defendant, uh, it, that's what they would be called in the court process, uh, the ultimate penalty that the person can face if the crime is a serious one could be imprisonment in a prison or jail uh, or probation, uh, as well as a fine and various terms and conditions like restitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and the court has the authority to supervise through a probation or Uh, probation office, uh, that the person is complying with all of the orders the court has made. And most common and and really mandated is an order for restitution. Okay. So in any criminal case, the court is is going to order restitution. But understand, an order is not the same thing as the money in your pocket. Right. They have to have the money available, I suppose, to to give it back. And so then a civil suit in comparison would be, or civil action, I guess. I'm going to describe two kinds of civil action. So there's one that, uh, that say, the elder could, uh, could initiate using an attorney. The beauty of the civil system is it has lots of remedies, none of which would involve jail or prison uh, or probation, but involve remedies like keeping people away from each other, can be orders for restitution, uh, can be return of property, restoration of title. So a variety of kinds of remedies Uh, And the thing to know about this is the older person who brings the action, and that person's called a plaintiff, the plaintiff is in control of that case. They direct the attorney how they want to see the case handled. They have the power to discontinue a case, and they have the power to agree to settle a case uh, with the other side. But, uh, and they can represent themselves, although I think people who represent themselves in a system as complicated as the civil justice system um, are doing it at their peril. Mm -hmm. The others, let me add one more piece, and that is on the civil side, there's also a special part of the court called the probate court. And the probate court is a protective court. So actions are brought to the probate court to have an older person or other person uh, be made uh, to be conserved, to be the subject of a conservatorship in which someone the court appoints and monitors is now going to be responsible for taking care and making decisions about the older person's health needs, living needs, and or financial needs. Okay. The pro or the thing to know about probate court though is it's very restrictive and the older person is going to be subject to protection 
rather than be in the driver's seat as they would be in a civil action. The probate court acts when we're dealing with people who have serious capacity issues, not when someone is fully functioning. Right. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. I mean, I guess, you know, another way to put it is, I guess, in general, there's often kind of two bodies of, of laws in parallel, the, the criminal ones, where uh, certain uh, behaviors are defined as crimes, and there's the whole justice, criminal justice system set up to investigate and, and determine penalties and maybe order restitutions. And then the civil one, which is more about, uh, I guess, defining, you know, how we're supposed to behave towards each other and what might be illegal and and what we might be able to do about it. Does that sound about right? Uh, it is. And then, of course, the probate, which is part of the civil court that is the protective court for the older person who um, is unable to meet their basic needs and, and needs protection. Right. I want to, may I mention one more thing here that might be useful for people to know. In financial situations, uh, older uh, people who have been the victims of financial abuse might want to know that there actually is a civil cause of action for elder abuse. Uh, now, they, they should talk to an attorney about whether a given situation would meet the requirements of that. But here's what a person can recover from a civil action based on elder abuse. They can collect damages. They can collect attorney's fees and costs of litigation. And in some cases, they can uh, collect punitive damages. So it is a powerful weapon in appropriate cases. Uh, and it is valuable for a person who's had a serious loss and a, and a situation that's egregious to consider whether a civil attorney could be helpful on thinking about these kinds of cases. Right, right. Well, I mean, when I think about, you know, the concerns people have brought up to me, because I've, of course, you know, as a geriatrician, I'm periodically approached by mostly concerned family members about what's happening to an older parent or other older relative. I, you know, I feel like people's questions are sometimes, you know, is that legal, what <laughs> so-and-so is doing, especially if it's a family member? If it's a, you know, a stranger, a predator, usually everyone's quite sure it's not legal. So one is, is, is that illegal, what they're doing? And then two... What can I do about it to, to get it investigated or stopped? And so it sounds like, it, you know, to answer the question of is it illegal what someone is doing to an older person, that uh, defining financial exploitation of, of older adults and what's illegal would be defined probably mostly in state law, both on the criminal side and the civil side on what is considered illegal. And then if they want to investigate it, if they think it's criminal, they would approach law enforcement and if it's civil, they could both alert Adult Protective Services and or consult an attorney. That's that's a good analysis, but they should also understand that they can contact Adult Protective Services uh, if they think it's criminal or just aren't sure. Mm -hmm. And Adult Protective Services, if it discovers conduct that looks criminal, at least uh, in many states, including California, are required to notify law enforcement mm. uh, of the possibility of criminal conduct. Mm -hmm. Right. And some people are actually mandated to report suspected financial abuse or other forms of elder abuse to Adult Protective Services, right? That is absolutely right. We are a mandatory reporting state. Mm -hmm. So it's not every state, but some states that have 
uh, mandated reporters. And so I think in California, as a health provider, I am a mandated reporter. Uh, who else is often a mandated reporter? Granted, it won't be true for every state, but... Well, in California, and by the way, 49 of the 50 states have mandatory reporting laws okay. uh, regarding elder abuse or vulnerable adult abuse. But having said that, there are many, many variations in what gets reported, to whom it's reported, the timeline to report, and so on. And so if you're in other states, you need to check the specifics to see who is mandated to report because there's quite a lot of variability. But looking at California, uh, anyone who's employed uh, as a health care provider working directly with older people is a mandated reporter, as you correctly pointed out. Uh, adult Protective Services is a mandated reporter. Law enforcement is another. Uh, California is not like every other state, but there are a few states that make employees of financial institutions uh, elder abuse reporters. So uh, that bank teller who sees something that looks really suspicious of a client uh, who's elderly would be a mandated reporter. Yeah, I was just wondering about that, actually, because, um, you know, financial advisors would seem to be in a position to notice if an older adult starts spending large sums of money or unusually. And uh, so it sounds like they might be mandated to report in some states, but uh, not all, and perhaps not here. Is that right? That's absolutely right. The other group, and it's a, a very large category, are people who provide social services to older adults. So think about, as examples, uh, in-home supportive care that uh, pays people to provide care in people's homes, Meals on Wheels kinds of programs, programs operated by Area Agency on Aging, a senior daycare and senior health care centers, and other groups like that. Uh, the, uh, humane officers uh, and fire, uh, fire department officials are also mandated reporters. And California also mandates that clergy report, although there are some limits on that. So how often do the mandatory reporters actually report? Or, you know, how are these cases most often brought to the attention of authorities? Because I feel like families sometimes say, you know, why didn't anybody do something? And I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> so sadly, uh, and this is the sad, the really sad part, elder abuse is terribly underreported. Mm. And it's terribly underreported to anyone. And I'm going to share a study that was done in New York that really makes this message very powerful. So New York did a very big study of older adults and the reporting of abuse. And what it found is when you're talking about all forms of elder abuse, about one in 23 cases is reported to somebody. But if you look at financial abuse, it's one in 44, which I find utterly shocking. Mm, because it sounds low, one in 44. It's shockingly low. Right, yeah. Well, they say that sometimes uh, people, older adults, don't want to reboard it because they're they're embarrassed or, as you mentioned before, families or others uh, sometimes react to uh, the situation by attempting to further limit the older person's autonomy, right? 
Oh, it, there are many reasons elders don't report, and you've given us a couple of good ones. Let me add at least one more, and that is that they're not able to report. Mm-hmm. Right. So because they might be impaired or, or not allowed to? Well, it could be both, but I'm really mostly thinking of dementia, where there are cognitive or physical declines to a point that the person is not able to either recognize what's happening or explain what's happening, let alone report it. And sadly, some folks who are elderly have had the experience that when they've tried to report, it's been discounted because people think they're demented Mm. and don't take it seriously. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So I do get a certain number of comments on the site complaining about this and asking me for suggestions about, you know, what, what can be done. But it does seem that especially when there's an older person who has some cognitive impairment, which may or may not have been diagnosed, you know, people often say they were having memory problems, but didn't necessarily have a diagnosis. And there's a family member who seems to get closer, seems to isolate them from other family. And, and then according to these complaining family members, isn't, you know, inducing the older person to spend money inappropriately or change their will. So when families have that kind of concern, uh, and so they're being, you know, one kind of kept apart from the older person, and two, the older person may have some, you know, already memory and thinking problems. What can they do when they're concerned about that? And also, the other thing I hear about is so-and-so got mom to change her power of attorney, <laughs> right? <laughs> what can be done? Well, there, there are a whole lot of things, and they're sort of graduated uh, in terms of, of how aggressive a person wants to be. I think it's depending on the family and the history of relationships and the relationship of the concerned child with the the older parent or grandparent, I think it's always valuable to start informally and just ask the person one-on-one what's going on. And it's something that has to be approached gently. Uh, it's something that the first time may be rebuffed, mm-hmm. uh, but it is to try to get a get at least the older person's perspective, such as they may have on what has been going on. If a person has a strong relationship, asking to look at the paperwork to say, may I check and make sure the bills are all getting paid? Would you mind if I did that? Or saying, could I look at your bank statement or could I call the bank with you and make sure that everything's where it needs to be? And starting in a in a sort of a gentle and kind way to think about what is the real state of events. A lot of things can look bad and not really be bad Mm -hmm. or at least not be criminal. Right. Um, If there have been changes, for example, dad in fact has changed uh, the person who holds the power of attorney. It might be exploring, tell me what led up to this. Are there reasons uh, and see if those reasons have any basis in in rational thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if Dad is describing that uh, Martians came down from the sky and uh, hovered over the bed and told him he had in a dream he had to make these changes, that looks really different to me, and I think to you as a medical provider, than uh, I felt that uh, you folks live two hours away. Your sister uh, lives 
three blocks away. And for reasons of convenience, it just made more sense to make her the financial power of attorney. That sounds like a very different conversation to me. Well, that's true. I think sometimes, you know, the thing that is said, uh, if they say something is, oh, well, um, uh, she, let's say it's a daughter who's moved in with them. She wanted me to, mm-hmm. to the others. And then there's this question of, did that daughter influence inappropriately? And, and actually, maybe you can briefly talk about this idea of undue influence, because there is this, because uh, as we were saying, we're all influenced by people who we're in close relationships with, but there's this idea of undue influence, you know, sort of inappropriate or excessive influence. Can can you tell us what that term means? And is it illegal to exert undue influence on an older person to get them to more or less voluntarily change what they're doing to your financial advantage? Undue influence makes it much less than voluntary. So undue influence is in most places, and California included, is not a crime. So it's not a crime to unduly influence. However, undue influence is the tactic or set of tactics that an influencer uses in taking control of another person's decision making. So it is the way that a perpetrator commits the act and the act may be a crime. So if if it might be a crime of Uh, of theft, of stealing something where the elder says, yes, you can have it. But the reason they said you can have it uh, is because of all of these tactics of undue influence that are used. And things that are included here would be things like isolating by convincing the elder parent or, or older colleague or friend that the world is kind of out to get them and that the children are up to no good and they just want to steal the money. It is cutting them off from decisions that, uh, from information that can give rise to a reasoned decision. It's lying to them. It is uh, making them make uh, choices at odd times. So most people don't sign contracts at three o'clock in the morning. So if someone is being hustled and they're given 20 minutes to understand uh, a contract and told they have to sign it now or terrible things will happen, or there will be some untoward consequence. Those are the kinds of features that are tip-offs that this is not really the true desires of the older person, but that they have been backed in, manipulated, or coerced to do something that's against their will. Mm -hmm. It might be helpful to give a definition of undue influence. And I was actually interested in uh, when I researched and finding out that California was relatively recently that they redefined it or clarified the definition on the books. It sounded like it was just in the last five or 10 years. I forget which. It's even sooner than that. It was 2014 that we had this major change in the law. So I'm going to give you sort of a framework for thinking, and then I'll give you the legal definition. So in terms of a framework, Undue influence is sort of like brainwashing and mind manipulation, but it results in the substitution of one person's will, that would be the exploiter, the influencer, for the true desires of another, and that would be the older person. It's often accompanied by fraud, duress, threats, and pressure. Uh, It usually involves one person using their role uh, or power to exploit another person's trust, dependency, and fears. Mm -hmm. 
it's not a single act, but it's a series of acts. It's a pattern of excessive persuasion. Now, in California, the statute that we just mentioned that changed in 2014 uh, says that in figuring out has undue influence occurred, the court considers four things. So the first is the vulnerability of the victim. So is this person lonely? Are they grieving? Are they in poor health? Are they having cognitive problems? Mm -hmm. The second is the influencer's apparent authority. So what's the relationship? Is there a fiduciary relationship? Are they a family member? Are they a care provider or a spiritual advisor um, or, or an attorney or a healthcare provider? Right, kind of the power relationship in a way. Exactly. And it's really looking at situations where there may be a power imbalance against the older person. The third element is the influencer's actions or tactics. And some examples would be the influencer who controls aspects of the older person's life, especially things that relate to food, clothing, shelter, or medical care. Um, Or even maybe the ability to stay in their home, right? Because... That would be a great example. Sometimes it's uh, things of misuse or use of affection, intimidation. I mentioned what time of day do things happen? Are there initiations of changes in legal documents in secrecy or at unusual times? And then finally, the court considers the equity of what happened. So are the parties benefited equally? How does this action compare to past acts and histories and patterns of acts of the older person? How long have these people known each other? Is this something like my situation going back to the gentleman and uh, the younger woman who befriended him in the restaurant that went for a few months? Or is this a child who's been involved in the person's life? Right. You know. For years. Or when you said the benefits of the party, that other case you mentioned where the uh, the daughter got her mother to sign a deed, sort of giving her the whole house, that's that's a very unequal result that is just so clearly to the disadvantage of the older person that it would be suspicious for undue influence, it sounds like. Exactly. And so the court would consider these kinds of things. And maybe if I were a family member concerned about whether undue influence is part of what's happening to my parent or friend, thinking about these different categories and saying, what do I know? What's really going on? Helps understand, is this really going to stand the test of undue influence? Or is this just being driven by an understandable concern that stuff just doesn't feel right? Mm -hmm. Right, right. Okay, well, this has been uh, so, uh, so wonderful, helpful. Well, before we recap and, and wrap up uh, sort of the key things people should should know and do if they're concerned that an older person they know might be financially exploited, can, can we briefly talk about prevention? Oh, I, I wish we would. Yeah. So what can people do kind of earlier in life to reduce their risk of being financially exploited or abused later on when they're in a more vulnerable state? You've already identified the most important part, which is start early. Mm. Start when you are as capable as uh, as you can be and plan for the future. Plan for a time when you may not be as able as you are now. Now, I, I need to acknowledge that for some older adults, this is really hard. Oh, it is for most, difficult. I think. 
it's really hard to think about your own uh, vulnerabilities, aging, uh, becoming uh, frail, and accepting that at some point uh, you you're human, which means you will die. Right. And and acting accordingly. So. Although you did mention that, you know, this comes up even even if you're not cognitively impaired and very frail, that just isolation, grief, bereavement, right? So we, we don't even have to envision a very uh, debilitated state to envision situations that put people at fair risk. So the first is start now. Mm-hmm. I would have said start yesterday, but I realized that can't happen. Okay. So advanced planning is critical. Uh, it's critical to protect your assets. It's also critical to make sure that your desires are understood and are carried out. If you fail to plan and you don't create documents that articulate what you want to happen, the results can be really devastating. And sadly, they can reduce the quality of your life. They can lead to costs that you incur, your estate could incur in your Uh, once you're gone, and to your beneficiaries, who are people that you probably want to maximize benefit for. So there are a number of things that you can do. The first, of course, is know what your assets are. Mm. And the second is to create an estate plan. And that includes powers of attorney for both both health care as well as powers of attorney for finances. Mm Depending on what your assets are, these may also include a a trust or other creation of documents, but these are things with uh, that need to be discussed one on one with an attorney. I can't I cannot give you that kind of advice because everyone's situation is going to be different. And an attorney who focuses on elder law is much better situated to understand the law to understand the intricacies and to understand your situation and to advise you. And so that, I think, is an important step. If you are of very limited means, uh, that doesn't mean you don't need an estate plan. It's likely to be a simpler estate plan, but you may be able to qualify for Uh, free legal assistance through your local legal assistance program. And those uh, can be located uh, either on the the computer, checking Google for legal services for older adults. Probably the local area agency on aging might be able to point people towards it as well. And as well. And also APS, Adult Protective Services, can give advice or can guide you to those resources. Uh, And the local bar association can also help you uh, identify those entities if you're not familiar with them. Mm -hmm. And are there other sort of uh, sensible protective things that people could do? You had sort of mentioned before that one's concerned, one could approach one's parent and say, can I, can I review your, your statements? Do you recommend that people kind of set up uh, some way for family members or trusted people to be able to, to view their financial activity? Uh, assuming that the relationship is, uh, is going to allow this to exist, I think it's really valuable to, uh, to have a trusted friend or advisor or family member look over 
the bank statements and the expenditures uh, on a regular basis, in addition to either you doing it yourself or having some other person. So a second set of eyes, just to double check, is really valuable. Uh, some folks uh, get permission for the bank to contact them. So the the older adult who is the account holder may be able to ask the bank if if the bank identifies suspicious patterns to contact the son, the daughter, whatever, uh, an identified person in addition to the older person. That can be really helpful. Uh, it's also valuable for you if you're the older adult and are able to look over what that trusted son or daughter is doing, even as a favor to you. Take another look. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And actually, you know, you mentioned getting a, a, a power of attorney so that someone else could could manage your, your financial affairs or other affairs on your behalf, either if you're incapacitated or right away, depending on how you set it up. But you had mentioned before that sometimes those are abused, right? Because they can give the, the attorney, in fact, all this latitude and ability to spend the person's funds. And uh, I recently came across, it was the first time I'd seen it, sort of suggestions for minimizing the, the risk of abuse of power of attorneys. And they had suggested when you set up the document requiring accounting to a third party regularly. Have you come across that? And do you think that's a good idea? Yes, we haven't spent much time talking about powers of attorney in this discussion. Uh, and it is a complicated field, but it's a really important one. Some basic information that may be useful is, first of all, the power of attorney was created in the first instance as, a, as an easy and inexpensive way to take care of a person's needs later on. And, and the important thing to know is in the right hands, they work perfectly. Most families, most uh, people who have created powers of attorney have not been mistreated. Right. Sadly, uh, if you're an APS worker or a law enforcement officer or prosecutor, what you typically see are the ones that aren't being handled properly right. or where there are concerns. So in terms of the power of attorney, please know that the person that is given the authority to act is a fiduciary. What that means is that person is required to act in the best interest of the person they are assisting. So understand a power of attorney was never intended to be a license to steal or a license to take care of your own needs at the cost and expense of the elder's money. So what are some things that you can do to make sure your power of attorney is being executed properly? So designating a third person to get an accounting is a really good way. Having a trusted family member uh, allowed to review the, uh, the payments and the expenditures on a monthly basis is another good way. Another uh, thing I have seen that I think makes sense is having an agreement with the bank that expenditures over a certain amount, maybe it's uh, for larger purchases, must be countersigned by two people who are identified in the power of attorney document. So these are all ways that a person can make sure that the power of attorney 
is going to function in their best interest when they're no longer in a position to oversee it. Yes. Well, as you said, it's certainly a big topic and, you know, I hope to eventually do a whole episode on it, but I've been following online caregiver forms for many years and it's a recurring thing that, that I see come up is an adult child complaining about a sibling supposedly misusing the, the power of attorney. So I think it hasn't yet become common enough for people to set them up in a way that allows perhaps some of the other adult children a little bit of, um, you know, an opportunity to see what's going on because more eyes can sometimes, well, improve communication and maybe reduce the risk of exploitation or of these conflicts because it does seem quite common for, at least, of course, on the forums, it's the people who have concerns who speak up, not the ones where everything's going fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I know that that's a, a common source of, uh, concern is, you know, what is the sibling doing with the power of attorney? Well, Candace, this has been wonderful. I'm mindful of, of your time. I know you could just keep telling us much more and there's so much more I want to ask you, but we might have to do it in a follow-up episode at some point, but just to wrap this up. So I guess the, the key things we've talked about, financial exploitation is unfortunately pretty common either uh, perpetrated by, you know, predators who do scams or purposefully befriend vulnerable older adults, but also sometimes perpetrated by family members or other people in a position of trust. And so for the audience, if they're ever concerned that their older parent or an older relative is being financially exploited, the key things to do? So these are my thoughts. First of all, an index of suspicion is really healthy. I don't want to discourage people from being concerned. But once you have a concern, do something. I'm going to paraphrase uh, TSA and say, if you see something, say something. Tell somebody. Be a good neighbor. Be a good friend. Be a good family member. Look out for changes that don't make sense, especially if they involve new people in an older person's life and that older person may have some cognitive problems. Uh, if possible, if you have a relationship, know who the older person is willing to have you call if you do have a concern. And don't be afraid to make that call. If you don't have a person like that, uh, or if the person is pretty much alone, don't hesitate to call Adult Protective Services. They are not the police. Their goal as social workers is really to help the older adult and to keep that person in the setting, in the home of their choosing. It's not to put them in a nursing home. And they can bring into place lots of services that may be life-changing and protective for an older person. Um, if you're concerned that you think you have a crime, by all means, I would add a second call and I would add notify law enforcement and let them look into it as well as APS. If you are a professional, be a, con uh, be a concerned professional. Make sure you understand your reporting duties uh, and make those reports. Remember, uh, Every state provides protection to people who report, even if they're wrong, as long as they report in good faith. Mm -hmm. And if you're not a mandated reporter, just remember uh, you're, often, you're always able to just call the on-call number that's available readily uh, through the phone services as well as online. Uh, you can report anonymous, anonymously without giving your name 
and just provide the information about the nature of your concern. Mm-hmm. Right. And then finally, get involved. Because you may save an older person from untold tragedy, sadness, and suffering. All right. And then uh, lastly, do your own planning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to yes. Uh, make it easier uh, to protect yourself and, and uh, make it easier for those to intervene appropriately if there's cause for concern at some later point in your life. Well, great. Do you have any favorite websites or resources that you want to recommend to the audience? I'm happy to recognize three that I often look at. The first uh, is the National Center on Elder Abuse, uh, which provides all kinds of community-based and as well as professional resources and information in a very readable form. The second would be the National Association of Adult Protective Services. Uh, Its letters are NAPSA. That's a short form Uh for that. And they provide a lot of information about adult protective services. They also have on their uh, front page or their web page a connection to be able to report across the country if you have a concern. Oh, great. And then... Uh, And by the way, the National Center on Elder Abuse also has a place to do that. Uh And then the Department of Justice has created an elder justice initiative, and they too have a website with lots of information, Uh, although it is primarily, uh, it has, let me back up. The elder justice website has information for members of the public as well as for professionals working in the field. Great. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Candace, for talking with me about this today, but also for just all the work you've done on this important issue in uh, in your career. I just think it's wonderful how um, how often it's the the efforts of committed professionals such as yourself that really help us take a big step forward in addressing an important issue. And it's just wonderful that this has led to specialized you know units in most municipalities to help protect older people and help concerned families. So thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes, and if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.